Welcome to the Silakama Extractive Podcast as we continue our discussions on the subject of value addition with a focus on mineral resources. Today, my guest is Dr. Mone Monstad. Dr. Monstad is the director of the Institute of Future Research at the University of Stellenbosch in South Africa. He is also an international advisor on futures-based decision-making. He's a full member of the Club of Rome and a board member of the Bureau of Economic Research. He's an author of a book, Systemic Leadership Learning. Dr. Monstad, welcome. It's nice to have you on my show. Sheila, thanks so much. Great pleasure to be with you. I look forward to our conversation. That's fantastic. So let's get cracking then. I did want to ask you, you know, when we think of value addition of minerals and other raw materials, we assume some technological capacity. Currently, the buzzword is the fourth industrial revolution. Mm. Could I just start then by asking you to explain what this concept of the fourth industrial revolution means to our listeners, please? And what is it and how has it come to be? Yes, it's such a great question because, of course, you're right. We use it all the time. I think one way to think about it is these four dramatic disruptions in our history over the last two and a half centuries that have fundamentally changed the way we do business. So very briefly, if we run through those four, then the first around the mid 18th century was really driven by speed. And that led to a mechanization. Really, humans discovered the machine essentially in the mid 18th century led to this large-scale mechanization, and it meant that we could produce enormous quantities with very high levels of standardization. And that also meant that the way that we organized as a society became organized around industrial cities. Roughly a century after that, the the mid-19th century, that uh, revolution was really driven by electricity. And that meant that the scale of production could be ramped up dramatically. And we really entered a full-scale kind of 24-7 economy. And industrial cities really kind of expanded to industrial regions. And the idea of scale became suddenly very important. In the mid-20th century, the technology that drove the next revolution, one could argue, was essentially the microprocessor, electronics, information technology, and that led to the idea of automation. So suddenly now, labor started coming under threat, the idea of using humans for work, and we started developing really a globalized perspective of production. And then the fourth industrial revolution, you know, the the sort of turn of the century, 21st century, I think one can argue that the technology that drove that kind of beyond the internet was really two key fourth industrial revolution bits of technology. That is big data and the internet of things. In other words, devices started talking to each other without the intervention of humans. And now we have through global value chains, uh, we're very close to the idea of full robotization and artificial intelligence 
is really what governs the fourth industrial revolution. So that's one way to think about that evolution from steam to electricity to the microprocessor to artificial intelligence. And that's changed, of course, the way that production happens all over the world. Now, one of the interesting things that you've said is that as all of this happens, one of the outcomes is that the world has become, if you wish, a single entity, at least in terms of the way we communicate, the product that we consume. And so as African governments push for increased manufacturing through value addition, how, in your view, does the fourth industrial revolution change the market dynamic at this stage in which uh, the African countries want to ramp up their footprint in the world trade? Yes, really profoundly impacted, as, you, as you're suggesting, by the fourth industrial revolution. Well, I think mean, one way to think about it is how is it different from the other industrial revolutions and how have market dynamics changed there? So we've already observed the idea that it's truly global. Value change themselves are global. Now, of course, we know that in the history of African colonization, for example, value chains have been really very much organized around sort of erstwhile uh, colonial relationships. And in fact, some of those still exist. In fact, they continue to exist to such an extent that up to about two years ago, the total intra-Africa trade was only about 16% or so of the total African GDP. So that just shows you the power of history, the power of colonial value chains. Now we have entered something that is truly global, but with a very paradoxical impact on Africa. Because, of course, now we're also discovering the enormous potential of African countries trading with each other. And, of course, that's been formalized in a continental trans-Africa trade agreement. So I think this presents an enormous opportunity for the growth of Africa. Because those, you know, 19th century trade routes, essentially, I think have made value chains for Africa really very restrictive and very complex. And they've really been at the mercy of what in some cases were really outdated trade agreements. But I think there's a kind of, um, I do become guilty sometimes, Sheila, becoming a little bit excited and philosophical, you'll forgive me. But I do think that there's another realization suddenly of the potential of intra-Africa trade which is one of the dramatic shifts in market dynamics. So some people think that globalization is a good thing. Others think that it is not. Do you have a view on this issue? I mean, is the world better for being global? (laughs) I think it's such a a tricky question because it, it relates to so many dimensions, including culture. And the reality is that trade influences culture. I think one of the risks we often observe when we think about globalization is the potential impact that might have on local cultures, whether that's in in Africa or or in South America or anywhere else. But I have to say, in my view, fighting against globalization is like fighting against the wind direction. The reality is that we're all on the same planet here. The connections between us are by far more interesting and exciting than the things that separate us. And so for me, 
the reason I mentioned culture is I do think that we need to spend a specific attention on defining and celebrating our own cultures. But I think it's really dangerous to try and cut ourselves off from the global perspective. And in many senses, you know, in the history of Africa, firstly, a lot of that trade has been controlled. But secondly, there's also been in some parts of Eastern Africa, a kind of exceptionalism. What I mean by that is that occasionally some African leaders have argued for this kind of exceptional case for Africa, that Africa is a special region with special conditions and special characteristics that deserve special treatment. In a way, of course, that's kind of heartening and endearing, encouraging to think about it as an exceptional case. But from a futures and strategic perspective, one of the longer term risks of thinking of yourself as particularly special is that you start to normalize certain behaviors of even rules that may in the broader context be considered to be less than acceptable. So we've seen, for example, you know, certain leaders in the African context defending their extended tenures and their quasi or full dictatorial behaviors based on this theory of African exceptionalism. So I think that the opportunities to be part of a global community exceed those risks, but I think it is similar to arguing that the opportunities of artificial intelligence exceed their risks. And why they're similar is I think we cannot just abandon ourselves, you know, place ourselves on the ocean of globalization. We have simultaneously, I think this is the complexity of managing it, we have simultaneously to celebrate the fact that we're African and at the same time embrace the opportunities that globalization has brought about. Yeah, isn't that really the spanner in the works for all the countries that uh, in the 19th century jumped the bandwagon of industrialization? That there wasn't a moment's pause to say, what does this mean at national level? We embrace the machines and now we are embracing other gadgetry and nobody is pausing and saying, what does this mean for us as a culture? What does this mean for us in terms of identity? Because, you know, quite simply, if you think about it, when you look at the emoji, the emoji started off with a certain face and now they are more inclusive. In the end, an emoji is an emoji. It just cannot speak robustly to a people's identity. That, it seems to me, is one of the challenges of how do we progress as a single planet benefiting from technological development while not losing ourselves in a frenzy where everything is homogeneous and every airport looks the same. And wherever you go, you drink wine from Stellenbosch if you are in Chile. And if you are in Stellenbosch, you drink wine from Chile, and then you can't tell the difference. This, for me, is something that I find regrettable, that as I travel the world, more and more I can close my eyes and know what the brands are that are at the airport. 20 years ago, as a student, when I started traveling, it wasn't like this. But that is by the by. I think what you're saying is the choice is not whether we are part of the globe. We are. The only choice is how do we become part of our globe in a way that we don't lose ourselves. I think you make such an important point. 
it's really not an either or argument. And we really shouldn't think of it in terms of trade-off. The risk of technology and the impact it has on culture and indeed on the nature of being human, I think is real. And it is something that I think we haven't really as a species, let alone as a continent, that we haven't really as a species yet internalized. I mean, if we consider the fact that smartphones, which now, of course, is an extension of our bodies, only really gained mass penetration around a decade ago, Sheila, if you can think about that. I mean, we, it feels as if these devices have been with us forever. Mm. But if you, if you think about the 350,000-year history of our species, we've only had smartphones for about 10 or 11 years. And what that means is that, in a sense, we have not really learned how to incorporate the technology into our society. And you're absolutely right, I think, to point out that we think of the fourth industrial revolution as a technological revolution, whereas, in fact, I think it is wiser to think of it as a socio-technical revolution. In other words, we must be explicit and enhance, in fact, our understanding of what it means to be human if we want to come through this revolution in a meaningful way. And I would argue that Africa is the perfect place to learn about being human. Yeah. So I guess the question would be, as the African governments then advocate for value addition, which essentially contemplates turning raw materials into finished goods, including smartphones, has there been enough thought on what this will do to the identity of the continent and what it will become? Or are we really comfortable with the prospects that, you know, we may become defected a Silicon Valley? Are we comfortable with the cultural outcome of that progress? I mean, the idea of value that you introduce is, is such an interesting one. And, you know, language sometimes holds many of the secrets, the risks and the opportunities of progress into the future. So the idea of value addition, of course, as you say, comes from the fact that in so many instances, we are essentially taking things out of the ground, exporting them and then buying them back at a premium once the rest of the world has added value. And couldn't Africa do some of that? Well, I think the first question to ask is, what do we value? And so when we talk about value addition, are we talking about adding value to things that come out of Africa so that they are palatable for the rest of the world? Very philosophical response to your question, I understand. But I think it's important to also think about what the rest of the world values and then what Africa values and where the connections are there. Otherwise, we're essentially just perpetuating the idea that Africa is at the service of the rest of the world. And so the way that we think about value and the value that we can add if we only limit that mechanistically to raw materials needs to be something also that has, of course, a market orientation if you're in business, but has also an African character to recognize the importance of identity and culture that you mentioned earlier. Now, you might say, well, you know, that's a little bit philosophical. There's a real world out there. The market will eventually determine. But I think therein lies a real risk because that means that the risk that you identified earlier of a kind of homogenization of global culture is something that's very real. So I think we have to be explicit about, you know, not only adding value that the rest of the world wants, of course, that's important in commercial terms, but also adding value in terms of how we as people from Africa 
think of value. Is this what you were thinking of in your recent paper to the Club of Rome? I think it was titled Value, Values and Valuation. Is this what you were getting at? What does this mean for how we should think about value addition in Africa? Yes, that's exactly right. It was really a philosophical revisiting that was initially inspired by the the African debt crisis, the fact that uh, so many African nations seem to be continuously in debt and that the prospects for getting out of debt are really very limited. It made me think about why that is the case. There's some contradictory evidence. I mean, African countries, for example, are very often rated by ratings agencies as being very high risk. And yet, when you look at it at a corporate level and at an investment level, you see exactly the opposite happen. In other words, you see a large number of international organizations scrambling for Africa, and you see a large number of investors very attracted by investment opportunities such as African Eurobonds. So that seems really contradictory. Why is it that Africa often has a negative debt rating? and yet is very attractive for certain kind of investors when it comes to a corporate or investment bill. And that made me really think about the kind of value that Africa has to offer. And of course, one of the other considerations, as you well know, so that we continuously study at the Club of Rome, is the future of the ecological system. And so I really let my mind go about the ecological value of Africa. I mean, here's one of the really fascinating things I discovered, that a large percentage of the world's oxygen comes from Africa. Now, you might say, gosh, that's really strange. Well, what sort of value might we place on the desert in Africa? I mean, typically, the Sahara Desert is viewed as a heap of sand with almost no value, right? But if you view the ecology in a systemic way, what you discover is that Just as the economic system, which we discussed in the fourth industrial revolution, is globalized, so in fact the ecological system is also global. In the case of the Sahara Desert, what this practically means is that defunct lakes that existed in the Sahara are in fact enormous sources of phosphorus and other critical materials for fertilization of the rainforest of South America. So mighty winds sweep up these sands, carry them across the great ocean, deposit them on the floor of the rainforest, there to fertilize the vegetation so that that vegetation can provide oxygen for planet Earth. Now, how much do you think the Sahara Desert sand is worth now? I was really just being provocative so that we could revisit the way that we value Africa, that we value its people, its, of course, its natural resources, its minerals, and so on, but now also its ecological contribution to the world, not to mention, of course, Sheila, the rich array of high-level innovators from Africa in the diaspora now all over the world. And One of the practical outcomes of that paper is that perhaps when we think about business valuation, we should go beyond typical means of using, let's say, market capitalization 
or using you know enterprise valuation only or using the so-called EBITDA ratios and models and I'm proposing there what I'm calling a socio-ecologically adjusted enterprise valuation in other words that enterprises of the future perhaps could in my view should be judged not only by market responses such as market capitalization but also by the impact that these organizations have on societies and on the environment. This idea itself is not new when it comes to companies paying for repairs, but it is new in terms of linking it directly to enterprise valuations. And I think that Africa has a very interesting contribution to make here when it comes to the value of future enterprises. Yeah, so I have been smiling as you speak because yesterday when I woke up, one of my first Twitter messages was a statement that had been made by the head of state of Ghana in Switzerland, in which he said, we will no longer be exporting cocoa. We will make chocolate in Ghana. I was reminded that a couple of years ago, his neighbor in the Ivory Coast said the same. To which mm. I thought, my God, now you're going to have two neighbors, one <laughs> making Swiss chocolate, the other making Belgian chocolate. And I thought, though I couldn't fathom the correct response, it just didn't ring true that, that the best we could do 60 years later was merely reproduce yes. a product that was conceptualized by somebody else. Yes, it's a, a, a pr- great example. A product that is branded by somebody else, a product that will probably be consumed by somebody else, given mm-hmm. our disposable income. And I thought, not much progress. I don't know quite, I don't have the wisdom to offer an alternative, but it just didn't do that. But as you speak, and I'm very mindful because I'm a great lover of nature. Yeah. And one of the worst things for me with COVID is that I couldn't go this year to the Botswana's Okavango Delta. I'm suffering tremendous withdrawal symptoms, but I'll get over it. And so I traced that sand that you speak about, went Mm. to the Sahara and then went to the Amazon jungle to see the effect of that sand. And then, so as you speak now that there is capital there, there is value. And if we are indeed going to be one global world, how about you recognize this contribution in the global environment of Africa and many others. When I think of adding value, it is in a way in that innovative space, by all means, you know, if we can create jobs and do the same things that Ford did in the United States a century ago, so be it. But, you know, can we not now to your other article, which reads Africa should follow fourth industrial revolution quickly to shape the fifth And what you are saying now sounds to me getting closer to shaping the fifth industrial revolution because the manner in which we are adding value is such that we are following on somebody's footsteps. And I'm uncomfortable with the notion of value-add wherein all we are doing is following on somebody's footsteps and waiting for them to innovate and shape the globe. And so I do want to ask you, when you speak then of the Western strategist. What is a Western strategist and how does a Western strategist differ from <laughs> an African or an Asian strategist for that matter? Because I think we are smack in the middle of a dire need for a strategist right here, me and you, Moni. Yes. 
That's exactly right. And, and thank you so much for, for referencing those papers. Yeah, as you know, Sheila, I'm a strategist and a futurist myself. I'm always interested in what's the next thing. So as much as we're kind of grappling with the fourth industrial revolution, I already allowed my mind to go to the fifth industrial revolution and to contemplate what that might refer to. My intention with distinguishing a Western strategist from an African strategist is not to create a crude distinction. And of course, just as all African countries are not the same, the truth is not all Western countries are the same either. So I recognize that these are very broad generalizations. But what I meant by a Western strategist is typically what I described in the paper as a a bit of a tongue-in-cheek description, what I call a spreadsheet strategist. In other words, you look at the numbers, you look at it dispassionately, and you look at it hyper-rationally. Now, in a certain sense, that's not wrong, and that's one kind of mental model of the intellectual process that makes you take certain decisions. But I think Africa brings something that is beyond the spreadsheet, beyond the hyper-rational mind, beyond the reductionism of the typical Western intellectual tradition. Africa brings something that, in a sense, is the antithesis of the reductionist analytical strategist, and that is the holistic strategist, the systemic strategist, the interconnected strategist. And that is really derived from some of the ancient wisdom of Africa that comes from the celebration of the community and the importance of recognizing your own identity as somehow not completely defined by, but very much infused by the reality that you are among others. The well-known Ubuntu idea that I am because we are, which is so very different from classical Western hyper-rational thought, and perhaps Rene Descartes might be the obvious example there, not I am because you are, I am because I think I am. The classic cogito egoism, I think, therefore I am. So different from I am because you are. And so I just have a notion that as African strategists, we bring at least the potential for a more holistic approach now. When I look at some of the problems in the world of segregation and separation, which is what the classic spreadsheet reductionist mind is all about. Think about what a spreadsheet looks like. It's all about boxes and classification. And I think about what boxes and classification have meant for the world and the disruption, the social unrest. If you just look at CNN or Sky or Al Jazeera or Bloomberg or whatever you like to watch, You look at the chaos that these boxes have caused. I know I'm getting quite philosophically carried away here again, but I do think that one of the things the world needs now is an understanding of holism, of interconnectedness, of belonging. That doesn't mean that we all need to be the same, but we need what we call in complexity theory and systems theory, a requisite diversity. In other words, a holistic system in which you nevertheless have an enormous amount of diversity. I think that's where some of the leftist politicians really get it wrong. You know, when they argue for equality, they're essentially arguing for sameness. Mm. I think that's the mistake. We need a diversity of views, a diversity of perspectives. And so I'm not arguing that what Western strategists bring are not valuable, but I am arguing that it's perhaps time for African strategists 
to bring an alternative paradigm to strategy and long-term thinking that the world, I think, is in desperate need of at the moment. Yeah, that's one hell of a thing. You know, a long time ago, I thought of the countries I like and where I'd like to live. Mm. This would have been maybe 25 years ago, and I said it would be Sweden. It would be Botswana and Japan. Mm. And I try to think in my mind what was said about these countries that I liked. I think Botswana was easier because this is my place of birth, and I guess you have an mm. inherent sense of belonging. But Sweden mm. and Japan struck me as having remained somewhat culturally rooted, but at the same time modernized. Japan fascinates me to no end this way because they are the home of gadgetry. But yes. even in the way that they use the gadgetry, even in the way that they retail, their mannerism is yes. so rooted in their culture that I think it is that avoiding of losing of oneself as Africans and adopting a holistic rather than a spreadsheet approach where it's a box. And very often that box is me and those who think the way I do and yes. uh, to hell with the rest. And that attitude of me first is rewarded increasingly that it is now instructing new generations on what is kosher. I find that, frankly, very regrettable. But we are coming to the end of our conversation because I have enjoyed this because, you know, my sense of what you're saying to African leaders is, you know, be careful what you wish for. There is a lot here at stake. As we contemplate value addition, let us think really about what are the values that frame that drive for value addition and how do we value value itself? What constitutes value? It isn't self-evident. And people seem to think it is. My sense is that it isn't self-evident. A good example in the mineral space is that if you want to fire up factories, you are also going to fire out carbon into the atmosphere. And then where is the value, the intergenerational value there when you have unsustainably undertaken development? So let me conclude then by asking you to tell us, you have the luxury that is just you and I, at least for now. (laughs) So what are the necessary steps do you think that Africa and African policymakers must and can take to avoid missing the opportunity of reshaping the future and repositioning the fifth industrial revolution away from the spreadsheet? Gosh, a lovely big broad brushstroke question. I think the first thing is to consider whether it is really essential for Africa to follow the same trajectory the so-called West has followed in its own industrial revolution. I mean, Is it really essential for us to copy and paste that path onto our own future? And I would argue that that's a risk. We don't have to make the same mistakes that the West has made, including the devastating effects that so many parts of the West have had uh, on our ecology. That's the first thing. The second thing is that I think we should be very curious about the contribution that Africa makes to the world that is unique and creative and innovative. Not because we think we're exceptionalistic, but because we want to celebrate our own innovation and inventiveness as Africans. 
And that means not to only add the value that we think the West might desire, but also to add the value that celebrates who we are as Africans. The next thing is that you referenced the sort of rapacious individualism earlier, and I think that's something particularly to watch out for as we design our new futures, that we retain the magic, the wonder of this sense of interconnectedness, which so many First Nations, in fact, still hold around the world, but in many Western regions have really been sacrificed at the altar of sort of winner-takes-all type individualism. One way to think about the fifth industrial revolution is that if we've gone from mechanization to mass production to automation to robotization, it would be really tragic for us as Africans to aim towards becoming robots. It's a ludicrous idea. In our strategic advisory advice, I often get asked by senior executives, but how do I stay relevant in the face of such massive samples of data, artificial intelligence, and the internet of things? And the best response I have is that the best way to compete with a machine is to stop behaving like a machine, because that's the one thing that machines still can't do. Maybe in 100 years they will. But for now, the best way to compete with a machine is to behave like a human. And Africa, I think, has so much wisdom that will take 20 of these podcasts to explain what it might mean to be a human. One of those ideas, certainly, is a deep appreciation of our connectedness with our ecology and our connectedness with those others in the society. And so while the other revolutions have been about mechanization, production, automation, and robotization, the fifth industrial revolution, dare I say it, you challenge me to be bold, the fifth industrial revolution might be the era of enough. I know enough is perhaps anathema to, to every self-respecting capitalist. It's enough in a number of ways. Firstly, enough for everyone, those around us. Do they all have enough? Can we all make a contribution so that everyone has at least enough? And then the idea of extracting enough from nature in a way that doesn't sacrifice the long-term sustainability of the ecosystem, but is also enough to make the ecosystem survive. And that means also the idea of gathering for ourselves as individuals also enough, a sufficiency that we can have a tomorrow, that we don't gather today at the expense of tomorrow, and that there is also enough future for all of us in Africa. That's fantastic. Well, that I think is a good note to end that conversation, at least for now. Suffice to say, given the amount of food for thought you have uh, put out there, I shall be back and hope that uh, we can continue these conversations. But these are really very profound and important issues that are often taken for granted and don't find sufficient space in the policy dialogue because it is presumed that the spreadsheet is, in fact, the be all. And I mm -hmm. think you've done well to question the status quo. So thank you very much for your time. And I look forward to our future conversations.